My name is Kath. Hello if you're joining on the live stream. Hello in the room. I've kind of come back here because I've realised you have to do quite a lot of pivoting here, um, which is, is a nice rotation actually for the spine. Um, we are in looking at a series on the book of Ephesus or Paul's letter to the Ephesian church today. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, but it will come up on the screen as well. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. That is where we are in this letter. And what do I want to tell you about Ephesians chapter 3? This is what I want to tell you. It is a climactic summary of all Paul has been talking about in his letter so far in chapters 1 and 2. It kind of summarises everything and then it finishes with this powerful prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians, which is really the hinge point to the whole letter. And so the first two chapters of the letter, if you haven't heard the sermons that have been before, if you haven't read them, go back and have a read. But they are full of these expansive promises of God. And Paul shares this huge gospel message. He calls it the mystery. It's really like this open secret. Ooh, there was something that happened there. That that this open secret that has now been revealed, which is that the Gentiles can now be adopted into God's family. Praise the Lord, or we wouldn't be here today, guys. The Gentiles can be adopted into God's family, making them co-heirs. There's just something being thrown back and forth. Do I need to come and have a talk to you? It's John Carter. He's on staff for the record. Making them co-heirs and inheritors to all the promises and blessings in Jesus. And that through Christ, the dividing barrier has been removed between us and God, God and us, and between each other, the dividing walls of hostility between different people groups, um, making us one in Him. And, and also, He is building us into a temple or a dwelling place for His Spirit on earth and ultimately reconciling heaven to earth. That is epic. So that's the first two chapters. He's outlining this. The second half of the letter, guys, just spoiler alert, is going to be how the Ephesians should live in light of their new identity in Christ as part of God's family and as recipients of this grace. But the hinge point, as I just mentioned, is Paul's powerful prayer in chapter 3. So why don't we read this prayer together? If you've got your Bibles, it's chapter 3, starting at verses 14. We're going to go through to 21. Let's read together. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power. That is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I know. Mic drop. 
Shall we just go into ministry time? Honestly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack this a bit, but, but really, we are going to spend some time asking the Lord, praying this prayer over our church. There is a big difference between intellectually understanding concepts of God's love and this gospel story that we hear, and then experiencing this love in your bones, which will transform who you are and the way you live. And this is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians because he knows that even with all of his brilliant unpacking of the gospel message and his big theological concepts and promises, that there is a point when knowing God's love must go from being an abstract belief to getting it into your very being through an encounter with the power of the Spirit. And that's what we're going to pray for in a bit. And I just want to share a bit about my experience with this. I shared um, briefly some of my testimony a few weeks ago. But as a 14-year-old pastor's kid, I was at um, a youth camp in the 90s. You can't beat youth group camps in the 90s. Yeah, I am that old. And um, I'm a kid that had heard the gospel on a regular basis. Growing up in the church is going to do that for you. Growing up as a pastor's kid is going to do that for you. I'd heard about God's love. I knew that I had access to the Father, that because of what Jesus has done, I I could become part of God's family. I'd prayed the prayer several times. My sister had led me to the Lord as a four-year-old while camping in the backyard. All of that, done it all. And yet... On the ground, I was a kid that inside felt so deeply alone and isolated. I felt unseen and insignificant and often hopeless. And it was an encounter with the Spirit of God which turned concepts into an experienced reality, into a knowing that went far deeper than ideas or memorising scripture or even an emotional experience. And we do love those those experiences, don't we? It went to the core of my being and it transformed me. And some things were transformed immediately and some things were transformed over time. But I went from someone who deep down felt unloved and unworthy to someone who knew in my bones I was loved and delighted in. I went from someone who often cried themselves to sleep at night to someone who became characterised by joy and still am today. Yeah. I went from someone who was really quiet person to someone that genuinely could not stop talking and um, and then couldn't stop telling people about Jesus. And I'm not saying my life was perfect from that time on. Of course not. This is like... A struggle. Our faith is a journey. We've got to persevere. There's pain, there's challenge, there's suffering. But this set me on a course where I could not look back. And really, Jesus took hold of me. Like, what happened on that youth camp was just a prayer time, and I literally just heard him. It's the first time I'd really heard him speak to me and just say, Kath, I love you. I've always loved you. And you could just hear that and go, 
before. I've heard that a million times. But something about that, it was the Spirit of God. It went to the core of my soul. It feels like, I don't know if any of you have had this experience when you encounter the love of God. It feels like being found. It feels like coming home. It feels like tasting something that you were made for that you belong with because it is. It's like this fragrance. It's like this coming awake of like, I didn't know it was this good. I didn't know it was this good. And this was just a taste. And so I recognise what Paul is praying for here. It's for the Spirit to take the knowing of God from these abstract ideas to transforming how they lived, who they were and how they lived. And so we've already started talking about it, but why don't we talk a bit more about, well, why does Paul pray this prayer? And it's, yeah, very good, Irene, doing well with the slides, babe. So why does he pray this prayer for the Ephesians? Well, Paul himself had experienced a dramatic and powerful encounter with the Spirit of God. Does anyone know this story that I'm referring to? It's okay if you're unfamiliar, but basically Paul was very against Christians and the church and Jesus. He went around persecuting them, trying to put them to death. He was also very proud. He was a very learned scholar. He was called a Pharisee. Um, And basically he he was taking Christians down You can read about it in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus was revealed to him in quite a dramatic way. He went from being a man full of religious pride, hatred and violence and a lot of self-sufficiency to one who defined himself by God's grace and who gave up everything for the gospel. And he also says he considered everything that he gave up as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. That's what an encounter with this powerful spirit does in your inner being. And it's because of Paul's own knowledge of God's love that even while he's in prison, kneeling on this hard stone floor, awaiting his own trial. So he's in prison in Rome. This is where he's writing the letter. He's not even praying about his very own like real needs but he is praying for them to encounter this love. This is everything. Paul is a living picture of the letter to the Ephesians in this prayer. He is not denying his very real circumstances in prison, but he has an imagination that is more captive to the heavenly reality than the earthly circumstance. And this is his longing for the Ephesian church, that they would have this deep, deep knowledge. And this prayer, I mean, you could feel it in the room as I I read it out. It applies to us today. It is an eternal prayer. We need this as a church. We need this as individuals. You may have experienced something like I've just described before, maybe never before, maybe a long time ago, but we need this daily. We need to be grounded in this love of God. We need to be filled to overflowing. This stuff is real. I can testify it's real. Jesus is real. His spirit is real. Karl Barth, the famous theologian, said, the aim of theology is not to get it known, but to get it lived. And we get some pretty 
good theology here. Um, there is so many. I said to the morning service, it can be intimidating getting up here, following on from these amazing exegesis and unpacking of Scripture and diagrams that we have here at KXC. And it is brilliant. It is the gift of teaching. It opens our minds and it opens our hearts. But sometimes we can become so full up here with these concepts that if, if it hasn't actually gone anywhere then we just become like those stick figures with a massive head and two little stick legs. Like we've become huge. We've got all this great theology, but what has it done in us? What has it done? And I'm talking to myself. Has it changed the way we live? Has it changed the way you're seeing yourself, your identity, how you're seeing God, how you're seeing the world? So what does Paul pray So we've talked a bit about why does he pray? What does he pray? He prays that we would be strengthened by power in our inner being or that they would be strengthened by power in their inner being. And the words for inner being and heart are used here interchangeably. They basically mean the same thing, which is kind of like the control centre of the personality. It is like the core of your being. It is the deep things that you most hope for. It is your most foundational kind of commitments and assumptions, your deepest desires. It taps into how you make decisions, what drives everything you do, how you see things, how you live, okay? Given a pretty holistic picture. It involves our mind, our will, and our emotions, So this is where we need the power of God to come in to this control centre. And then it says that we are strengthened so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And and this word dwell is katoi. I'm going to try and say it right. Katoi keo. Sorry if we've got any ancient Greek scholars in here. The word that's used is katoikeo, which is a compound Greek word, which literally means to dwell down or settle down. It has this sense of permanence to it. So it's basically saying so that Christ can come and permanently move in to the control centre of your very being, the essence of who you are. And he wants to make home in you and he wants to settle his love into the core of our beings and transform how we think about ourselves and others, our priorities, our perspectives, our decision-making, our deepest desires. There is no part of us that Jesus does not want to inhabit. There is no part that he's intimidated by that's too messy for him, that's too dark for him. There is no part that he is not saying, I want to go there. That's how big, how deep, how great his love is. If our inner being is like a house, he basically wants to move into every room and do a full renovation and redecoration. He wants to renew, he wants to reshape us and heal us and redeem us, every part of us. In another way of saying this is he wants us to be born again, made brand new. But it says also that he dwells in our hearts through faith. And that means that we need to trust him to let him in. We need to trust him. He's not going to force his way in. 
Um, I had a um, recent visit or a few years ago, I had my sisters come to stay with me and um, one time I went to work, they were just staying at home and I came home and one of my sisters had like rearranged and redecorated my whole bedroom. Can I just get an outrage? <laughs> my eldest sister, my big sister, hello if you're watching. We did have words about it afterwards that was quite a strange and unusual thing to do without consulting me. But really just to say, like, our bedroom or our house, or it's like a representative of our inner world that we, if we think about that, we can be like, hang on, that's my space. But Jesus is saying, will you let me into the deepest space in you? And, and we're going to pray today that, that he's revealed to us as trustworthy because he's so good. We're not going to say yes to him we don't trust him. And that's faith is saying, okay, even there, you can go there. All right. Even that part of, even that deep desire or dream. Okay. Even there, that insecurity, that fear. That's what he's after today. Then Paul says this, he does this so that we might have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So let's pause here again. So this word grasp, or some translations might say comprehend, often we can just jump and think, oh, that's like, you know, when you, you've grasped a concept, it's all very up here and intellectual. But actually... Um, the great man, the late Tim Keller, I was listening to a sermon where he's reflecting on this. He said the word that he's used here for grasp means to aggressively seize or to take hold of someone or something. And it's often used in a context of like they grasped someone to rob them and take their possessions. Collectively, it was even used of like they seized a city and looted it for treasure. So that's quite, it's quite a different take, isn't it? Where it's like this real active thing. And I was like, how does this apply to grasping the love of God? And I, I sense that, there, that when we're seeking this, we are really called to go after it. Like it is a gift, but it's something we need to take hold of. And even to the point where we're like, I am going to get that treasure. And even coming from that place of there must be more than this. There must be more. If I am belonging to God, if I'm in his family, if I'm filled with his spirit, if his love inhabits me, I shouldn't be living with this fear. I shouldn't be feeling empty. I shouldn't be feeling despairing. There must be more than this. And that's right. That's right. Yes, we're going to have trials in this, on this earth. We're going to feel these different things. But there is more than this. And it comes down to knowing this love of God deep in our bones because that's how Paul could do what he did. That's how he could rejoice in prison and point to this love where he's on trial for his life because there is more. There is more than this. There is more. It just keeps coming and coming. His love. He, and so what are we grasping and taking hold of? Paul uses this beautiful meditative kind of narrative form where he uses words of measurement to meditate on something that is so vast that it can never actually be measured. 
And it's so huge that we can never actually comprehend it. But we can use these words to begin to ponder his love as part of this active grasping. And so he talks about the width. So you can do look at this however way you want, but like I like to think of oh, how wide to Jesus' arms go on the cross? And who is included when he died? Who did he die for? What did that achieve? He gave up everything, the vastness of this act of grace, that there is no one excluded, that there is nowhere we can go where his love isn't, where his love won't reach us. The fact that he never stops giving his love and will never stop. The length that his faithful love through history, from the beginning of time, that he has chased us down. He has had a redemptive plan, a faithful love. You might like to do it in a timeline of your life. If you know Jesus, where has he been? Where has he shown his love in your life? The height. He has been raised from the dead. There is no limit to the victory and the authority and the blessings that he's won for us because we are adopted into his family and we receive all this inheritance. Like this life is short, but the inheritance that we have in him is forever. We get it. We get the blessings that Jesus deserved and we get it forever. We get to know the Father forever. We share in his glory, his honour forever. It's so weird. It's a bit mind-blowing. It's a bit bonkers. I really get that. And the depth. He has gone to the darkest place. He took on all the sin and death and pain in the world that we know in the darkest times in our lives, he is the most intimate with us. Everything in our lives is an invitation to intimacy with him because there is nothing that he has not faced. He has gone to the depths for us. And why do we need to grasp this? So that we are filled to the measure of the fullness of God. This is what Jesus meant when he said he came so that we would have life to the fullness. And this is not about us as individuals just getting what we've always wanted in life, either in our career or materially or the relationship we've always wanted. Jesus showed us that by deeply knowing and trusting in the love of his Father, he was completely secure, completely satisfied, completely fulfilled. This is possible. This is not a fairy tale, I'm telling you. His identity, his purposes, purpose and actions were grounded in this love. And in Jesus, we can now live in the same fullness. Tyler Staten, in his reflections on Ephesians 3, said, The ultimate expression of the Spirit's power is a life so saturated by the love of Jesus that we actually live today like God loves us. When we do that, guys, we become those who no longer live like orphans. When you live like an orphan, you live like you've got no dad. You live like you've got no one looking after you or providing for you. So you've got to look after yourself. You've got to strive. You operate out of insecurity. You operate out of scarcity. 
But when we live as sons and daughters in His love, we are so secure in the love of our Father that we're free to take our eyes off ourselves and love others the way He loves. We become children who have our eyes constantly on Him, finding communion with Him, finding our joy and hope and peace and identity and security in Him. We can now know love without limit because there is no limit to His love. Do you know how I identify? This is a very modern phrase. I identify as his beloved. I identify as the one he delights in. I'm the apple of his eye. I'm God's favourite. I know that's controversial. We're all God's favourite. But he speaks directly. This is what keeps me going. This is where I get my security. This is where I find my peace when I'm not sure what the future holds. When I'm feeling alone, when I'm feeling like I'm not enough. He's the one I look to. It's his love. It's his eyes of love. His eyes of love. His voice of love for every single person in this room. Your deepest fear, your deepest insecurity, he can meet it with his love today. He can drive out the deepest fear that you have with his love. Even when you don't know what's going to happen, he can bring peace. It's, he's the, called the Prince of Peace. And he does it because we know we're secure. And the only way, like you might be listening to this going, Kath, this sounds like a lovely fairy tale. All right, well, let's get real. Let's let the Holy Spirit do his business because he wants to. He wants to.